Shalom, Shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted-in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Vayishlach, He Sent. The address is Breshit Genesis, chapter 32, verse 4, through chapter 36, verse 43. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman. This particular written commentary was updated on December 12th of 2005. Note, all quotations are taken from the Complete Jewish Bible Translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam, asher bachar banu mikol ha'amim, v'natan lanu et Torato. Baruchatah Adonai Noten HaTorah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Last week we talked about Yaakov, Jacob, and how that he is running. He's running from the people that he's wronged in his life. He's running from fear. He's running from uncertainty. And yet, because the invisible hand of Hashem, God, is guiding him, you could say that he's running too as well. And I made a play on the word, uh, on the phrase, the place, which in Hebrew is hamakom. I'd like to make a segue, that is to say a, a transition from last week's portion into this week's portion using a beginning quote from today, or in this week's portion, I'll begin with a quote from last week's portion. Okay? The quote goes like this. When we use our own spiritual achievements to measure our place with Hashem, we become callous to the real problem, a heart that is clouded by pride. Thanks be unto our God that He knows our heart better than we know it ourselves. He knows exactly what remedy is needed to shatter our shallow, prideful image and bring us to the place where we are ready to receive a genuine revelation from Him. He lovingly places just the right individuals and circumstances in our lives which will cause us to surrender our will into His perfect will. But like Yaakov we must be willing to stop running long enough to recognize them. Next week, we will see just where Hashem has brought him to and why. End quote. Now that was a quote from last week's Torah portion, Parashat Vayitze. Let's now begin this week's Torah portion. I'm on page one. These are, as I mentioned earlier, these are the closing few statements of last week's parasha, Kal Vayitzay. And this week's parasha, 
called Vaishlach picks up immediately where we left off, and that's why he created the segue between the two. In fact, to strengthen the segue into the next section, there's a play on words found only in the original Hebrew text. And let me go ahead and highlight that for you, okay? Verse 2 of chapter 32 from last week's portion reads in the English, Yaakov went on his way, and the angels of God met him. Verse 4 of chapter 32, the opening verse of our current portion, reads this way in English, Yaakov sent messengers ahead of him to Esau, his brother, toward the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Now, here's the play on words. The Hebrew words used for both angels and messengers share the exact same root, which is malach, M-A-L-A-K-H, in the if, if I could transliterate it. Ephraim and Ramona Frank give us these Hebrew insights concerning the opening words, and I'm pulling these insights from their website at, um, let's see, you can reach them at www.firstborn.com. That's 1st-B-O-R-N.com, firstborn.com. And then um, I'm pulling this out of Parashat uh, Vaishlach, okay? And this was as of December 12th of 2005 when I uh, made the quote. Here is the um, statement from their commentary. Quote, Then Yaakov sent, that is, Vaishlach, messengers, Malachim, before him to his brother Esau. The quote is from 32.3. These are the opening words of our parasha. Malachim are angels, messengers, or emissaries. Yaakov had seen them in dreams aside from the famous ladder scene in 28.12, an angel also addressed him in a dream in 31.11 and following. Uh, They go on to say that he had also run into um, Yahweh's messengers when he departed from Lavan in 32 verses 1 and 2. And now he sends messengers, that is to say, human malachim, to his brother Esau. The root of Malach, the singular form of, from Malachim, is La'ach. And it's comprised of the Hebrew letters Lamed, Aleph, and Chaf. And it means to send. It is from this verb, which is not in use here, but it's from this verb that we get the noun Malacha, which is the Hebrew term for occupation or work. Workmanship, such as the kind that was performed on the tabernacle, the Mishkan. Um possession, and more. So the, the word melacha means occupation, work, workmanship, possession, uh, various terms like that. Uh, Ephraim and Ramona Frank go on to say that later on, when Esau proposes that Yaakov come along with him, with his entire entourage, the latter refuses, saying that he will move according to the pace of the cattle that are before him. The quote is, or the uh, reference is to 33.14. The word cattle here is also melacha. Isn't that odd? So it's uh, it's 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 a group, or, or we could say in this case cattle, as the herds were going on ahead or being sent forth. The, those being sent is what uh, the point being made is, uh, or being sent forth in front of the retinue. End quote. Now, um, based off of their statement and their um. 
uh, insight into the Hebrew there, I'd like to make my own midrash, which, for those of you who don't know what a midrash is, it's kind of a homiletic application. What I'd like to do is play with the sounds of the Hebrew word for messenger and the Hebrew word for king. Okay, The Hebrew word for king is melech. Okay, And this has a similar sound to our word for messenger, which is malach. You hear the two? Melech, which is spelled M-E-L-E-K-H, and Malach, which is M-A-L-A-K-H. Now, in my little midrash, what if we were to suppose that the Malach was a messenger of a Melech? This would make the Malach someone sent on behalf of royalty or leadership, you know? Someone sent on behalf of a king. In verse 2 of the portion that we opened up with, the angels, the Malachi, are sent from Hashem, the king, to meet Yaakov. And in verse 4, the messengers, Malachim, are sent from Yaakov, the soon-to-be prince, to meet his brother Esau. Now, why do I say Jacob is a soon-to-be prince? Because he's going to have his name changed to Israel. And Israel means prince with God. So, in my midrash of these similarities, uh, I'm trying to show the contrast between the ways of Hashem and the ways of Yaakov. How so? Well, as the great almighty comforter, Hashem has twice sent supernatural messengers to Yaakov in order to both comfort and strengthen him as he journeyed on his way. Yaakov, by comparison, on the other hand, out of fear, sent human messengers. See the comparison? Supernatural messengers sent to comfort and human messengers sent uh, out of fear. And of course, these human messengers uh, are meant to obviously appease his brother Esau and to win his favor. You can reference verse 5 for that information. And verse 6. Nevertheless, the response from the messengers, when they come back and tell um, Jacob what's going on, because they see Esau coming with an entourage, right? And so the message (laughs) that they give to Jacob neither invokes comfort nor strength, but instead more fear. You know, he starts out fearful and hoping that maybe they would bring a good news to him, a good report, and as they inform him that his brother's approaching with a large company of men, um, Jacob gets uh, pretty fearful. And and why not? He doesn't know Esau's intentions. He his, He's got this large company of men approaching with possibly less than friendly intentions. You know, perhaps if we were in Jacob's shoes, we might have the same... Uh, same feelings towards the uh, situation. So, I'm not too hard on Jacob at this point. At any rate, as I mentioned in last week's parasha, Yaakov, I believe, was headed towards his divinely appointed destiny. And what was that? We only need to read back into the Torah portions to find out. He has a destiny to become the covenant man that Hashem had promised he would be. He is the recipient. He's the covenant recipient. Remember, the promise was made to his grandfather Avraham and to his father Isaac, Abraham and Isaac. And now Jacob has received the covenant blessings. And so he has to become the covenant man that God has planned for him. And yet, it's a struggle for Jacob. You see, for Jacob, even though he's a covenant man, and I'm not exactly sure how much of that he internalized, but for whatever reason, as we're following the events of his life, of of him running and and, and hiding and such, there seems to be an absence of real peace in his life, of of genuine shalom up to this point. He's, He's a covenant man, and yet he's not full. And so, 
we have to stop and 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 take um inventory of Jacob's life and find out if there are some lessons that we can learn from this great man. Yaakov had made no small accomplishment for himself. I mean, he acquired wives, sons, one daughter, and a great number of livestock. He was a rich man. Yet, these these possessions didn't fulfill him. There's a lesson in itself right there. The things that we gather to ourselves on the outside can never really replace the hollowness the hollowness in our own very soul if we are not at peace with the creator of all men. And so Yaakov knew in himself that he was not totally fulfilled. He's a covenant man, but he's not walking in the covenant blessings. I mean, in the spiritual aspect of it. Sure, he had material blessings. But, as I mentioned again, I believe that the blessings that God has for us as believers goes far beyond the material things that we can heap to ourselves. And I believe that for Jacob, the reason was that despite his grand self-achievements and clever actions in the past, he knew that he still had to face his greatest challenge. And what was that? He still had to confront the brother that he wronged 20 years prior. 20 years, people, had passed between he and his own brother, his twin brother, no less. And he knew he wronged him. And so deep inside his gut, in his heart, he knew that he had to rectify this situation. And even as he sent messengers up the way to see what was happening, here comes his brother with his entourage, and Jacob doesn't know. So, I believe that Yaakov became fearful for a number of reasons. First, as should be expected, he'd come quite a long way since that time earlier in his life, uh, growing from just him himself to, uh, as I mentioned earlier, a large family complete with wives, children, and livestock. He was naturally, like any man would be, concerned about the well-being of his immediate home, his family, his wife, his children. I mean, that's legitimate. So he, he has reason to be concerned there. Secondly, we find in verses 8 and 9 of this chapter that he's still operating not by God's guidance, as it were, but under his own devices. And that's a lesson there, too, for us. Sometimes in our fear, we take matters into our own hands as believers, and we know inside that we're acting under our own strength. The Holy Spirit usually reminds us when we're not walking in faith. In fact, um, many time, many a pastor has time and time again explained that... Um, uh, uh, how should I put it? Very important decisions should never, never be made out of fear. You should always take the matter before the Lord. You should always seek the Lord's guidance and counsel. You should always press into the Spirit when there is a very, very important decision that needs to be made. So, um, Jacob's operating under his own power. And rather than fully trust in the providence of Hashem, as he decides to divide the two family into camps, he takes it upon himself to make this decision. I don't know that he consulted the Lord's uh, guidance when he um, divided them into the camps, into the two camps. Nevertheless, that's what he does, and there's a little bit of wisdom there. So I, I, again, I'm not going to be too hard in him, but perhaps in this way, he thinks to himself: at least one of them, at least one of the two groups, will escape the possible or the potential wrath of Esau and his men. Because Jacob's thinking of the scenario. What's going to happen? Jacob is, or, uh, Esau's going to show up. He's going to be hot and angry from 
20 years ago when I wronged him and he's he's come to 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 exact revenge and and I don't know he he, he you know he just may slay women and children in his wrath so so Jacob's just doing what he thinks is the best thing to do however as we start reading down through chapter 32 at this point in his life at least as the narrative gives us a rather unusual yet wonderful thing takes place he cries out to Hashem for mercy and protection isn't that amazing it's it's like many of us when we reach a crisis situation we cry out oh god help me save me and yet really we should be crying out and uh, communicating with god long before the crisis comes but for whatever reason jacob is at this point now and unlike his previous encounters with hashem this particular petition as we read it in the narrative, and I'm going to read it for you in a moment, this prayer carries with it what I like to describe or recognize as the characteristics of a genuine plea to the only one who can grant supernatural safety and protection from all of our enemies. So, let's read the quote. I'm reading this time from the Messianic KJV. Um, I'm not sure where I got that from. I think I downloaded it online because it's not a hard copy. At any rate, let's read chapter 32, verses 10 through 13. Okay? Quote, Yaakov said, God of my father, Avraham, and God of my father, Isaac, and the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your relatives, and I will do good. I am not worthy of the least of all of your loving kindnesses and of all the truth which you have shown to your servant. For just with my staff, I passed over this Yarden, and now I've become two companies. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, and from the hand of Asaph, for I fear him, lest he come and strike me and the mothers and the children. You said, I will surely do you good, and make your seed as the sand of the sea, which can't be numbered, because there are so many. End quote. That's an awesome prayer. We could just stop and look at that and see the heart of Jacob as he cries out to God for protection, for guidance, for forgiveness, really. He's really he, he's really beginning to understand the situation he's got him, gotten himself into. And he really realizes at this point, I believe, that he is between a rock and a hard place. And the only way that that he's going to survive this ordeal is with God's help. And so he he reaches into his his memory of God's promises to him. That is a very very good um how should I put it? That that's a good thing to do people as believers when you're desperate, when you're in need, when times are dark and when the walls seem like they're closing in, pull out your Bible. Read the promises that God has made to you. The promises that are yes and amen in Yeshua. Remind God of his covenant uh, position. As a covenant partner with you, remind God that he is going to bless you. It's not wrong to remind God of these things. I think that God likes that. It shows that our faith is anchored in the very words that God promises to us as his children. So, 
when it comes to Jacob, as can be seen, he starts his prayer off with identifying his own unworthiness of Hashem's grace and protections of, uh, thus far. And that's really the way we should be. Lord, I am unworthy to receive the goodness and mercy that you've bestowed upon me. Jacob is in this position, yet he still pleads to Hashem to remember him and to deliver him from harm. In fact, as a kind of reminder and guarantee that Hashem is obligated to do justice, Yaakov, as I mentioned, restates the covenantal promise given to him in Breshit, Genesis chapter 28. And if you remember, that was at the incident with the dream, the latter. You can see the opening part of my commentary of last week, Parashat say for Jacob's ladder and the details there. And so after Jacob prays, and he hasn't received an answer from Hashem, he decides to spend the night there at that ford, at the at the at the um, the, the, the um, uh, mouth of the river there, or the uh, the bend in the river. He decides to to park it and, and just wait. I mean, what's he going to do? Take off and leave? Pack up his family? Um, traveling at night isn't the, the wisest thing to do. And Esau is close, so he doesn't know what's going on. The text seems, however, to indicate that before daybreak, before the sun comes up, Jacob decides to orchestrate yet one last plan to protect what belongs to him. And so he doesn't break camp and send everyone away. However, he sends his messengers again ahead of him in <laughs> what I like to describe as an elaborate um, echelon of gifts in order to thwart the possible heat of Esau's anger. You remember, Jacob doesn't know. He has not seen his brother since the incident involving the theft of the birthright blessing. So he had he really had every right to imagine the worst possible scenario surrounding this long-anticipated reunion. He himself decides this time to stay on one side of the stream, and he sends his uh, family on ahead. So he camps out on one side while his beloved family and possessions... How, you, you must imagine how painful that must have been uh, to send his uh, uh, wife and children on to face what he might... Uh, predict is an uncertain fate. However, using spiritual hindsight as we look into this story, we can really, quite frankly, say that this was the opportunity that Hashem was waiting for. The moment of truth. Yaakov, operating under his own power for the majority of his life, had unknowingly brought himself that is to say, under the supernatural guiding of the Ruach HaKodesh, of course, the Holy Spirit, he brought himself to the place, Hamakom, where he was going to encounter the God of his grandfather Avraham and of his father Yitzchak. A place where he would learn to call Hashem his God, not just the God of his fathers, but his own personal God. To be sure, this encounter was indeed the place, Hamakom, that Hashem had prepared Yaakov for all his life. A place where Yaakov had nowhere else to run to, nowhere else to run from, nowhere else to hide. A place where he was all alone. Suddenly, and without warning, a man leaps out of the darkness onto Yaakov. There was no time to think, only to react and fight back. As the struggle pressed on, I imagine Yaakov eventually found time to contemplate. Who is this? 
Why is this happening to me? Is this some rogue bounty hunter sent to, uh, uh, to take my head? Is he sent by my brother Asov? Is he going to exact a, a hefty sum of money? Is it, is it a local desert thug? Is it a demon? Where's Hashem now? Didn't he promise to protect me? Clearly, this was a physical wrestling match. Yet I believe, as Yaakov continued to wrestle, the spiritual aspects of the match came to the forefront. You see, the Torah says that when the unknown assailant failed to defeat Yaakov, then he struck the socket of Yaakov's hip, causing it to go into disjoint. Let's read chapter 32, verse 27. The first part says, The man said, Let me go, because it's daybreak. End quote. Jacob is clinging to this man. Why? I believe it is because by now, Yaakov had come to the realization that this was no ordinary man. It was not some desert robber, or bounty hunter, or even a demon. It was none other than a representative of the one who could see into his own hollow soul and cause the supernatural change that Yaakov knew he so desperately needed. And for this reason, rather than let go of this man, Yaakov clung on to him for dear life. You see, he had finally, finally come to the place where he knew he could not, he would not run any further. He knew now inside of himself that this was the only one who could rescue him from his own fearful self. So, despite the all-night struggle, he mustered up enough strength to say within himself, I will not. I refuse to let you go. I've spent all my life running in fear from the things that I could not control. I have nowhere else to turn for help, so I will not let you go. I will not let you go until you bless me. This was the breaking of the man Yaakov. This was the moment when Hashem recognized that he was genuinely a humbled man in desperate need of a savior. The messenger responded to Yaakov's plea, quote, What is your name? And he answered Yaakov. Then the man said, From now on you will no longer be called a Yaakov, but Israel, because you have shown your strength to both God and men, and have prevailed. End quote. That's verses 28 and 29. You see, no more would Yaakov have to operate under his own strength. For he had come face to face, as it were, with the God of Beit El. And this personal encounter had changed him down to the core of his being and finally, finally supplied him with the inner shalom that he so desperately sought his entire life. This is a genuine conversion, a genuine turnaround. In fact, the name Israel carries the Hebrew root word sar, 
which means prince, as I mentioned earlier, prince. Thus, his name change was a reflection of his own identity with Hashem. He went from he who supplants, or heel grabber, to that of royalty. He's a prince with God. When Yaakov inquired about the man's name, the man simply responded that Yaakov needn't know such details and simply blessed him there. But I like to imagine that to Yaakov there really was no doubt as to the identity of this messenger, despite his unwillingness to disclose his name. For Jacob felt within his heart, and I believe that he uh, uh, knew that that was God that he was wrestling with. In fact, he decides to call the place Peniel, which means face of God. Why? Because he recognized that he had seen Hashem face to face, as it were, yet his life was spared. He was not destroyed. Wow, what a powerful and moving story. I really, really ask that you will go back and read the portion on your own and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you the way he's spoken to me as I read through the story. In fact, I'm reading through my own commentary here and I'm just moved as I realize that the Spirit of God can change us from the inside out. He can fill us to overflowing with the peace and the wholeness that we are seeking. Jacob desperately needed to be completed. And only the Spirit of God can complete us. The narrative goes on to tell us that Yaakov continued on to face his brother Esau, but he knew now that he was on that um he knew he knew now that he was a changed man wouldn't you say he is a changed man he could hold his chin a little higher his stride was a little 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 more straight he could now carry himself with a renewed sense of purpose is what i'm trying to say moreover he was no longer at this point at least operating under his own pretenses this time he divides his camp again, only to launch out ahead of them to meet his brother in meekness and in humility. You see, God is guiding him now. He's not operating under the strength of Jacob. He's operating under the strength of the Holy One of Israel. He's operating under the strength of the One who has made covenant promises to stay with him, be with him, and go with him and protect him. His prayer is being answered before his very eyes. What an awesome example. What an awesome uh, model for us to, to learn from. As he approaches Esau, the text is very, very touching. Yaakov bows himself to the ground seven times. But this time, it's not a ploy. He's not trying to deceive his brother. He's not trying to win his favor um dishonestly like he did 20 years ago when he served him stew and bought his birthright no there's no false bravado here or showmanship going on this was the display of a man who had yielded himself to the mercy and grace of the almighty god and who was now ready to make restitution for the wrongs that he had committed it is so touching as we read the story of the reunion between these two twin brothers. Esau recognizes that this is not the same Yaakov. 
Something has changed. Who is this man who's kneeling before me? And I can tell that there's, there's something different about him. There's an air of, of humility. Where's the Jacob who stole my birthright 20 years ago? Where's the man that I should be hot and angry after? Instead, before Asav, before him was a man tender and vulnerable, waiting to be welcomed by his twin brother, his only brother, I might add, his own flesh and blood. Let's read the text. Chapter 33, verse 4 reads, quote, Asav ran to meet him, hugged him, fell on his neck, and kissed him. And they wept. End quote. Such a touching reunion. Asav's reaction to his brother is that of one responding to an individual whose life has been supernaturally changed from the inside by the power of the Ruch HaKodesh. There's no doubt that he sensed the change and he himself was softened. Reminds me of the verse that says that a soft answer turneth away wrath. Jacob is a changed man. He's no longer the deceiver Jacob. He's the humble man. He's Israel. And this is the man before Esau. In fact, even though... Um, well, let me back up. There, I, I really believe there's no doubt that, that Esau sensed the change within Jacob and that he himself was softened. This response of Esau's, in my opinion, was only accomplished by the power of Hashem. You see? The Spirit changed Jacob and in so doing, softened the heart of his angry brother Esau. That is a powerful lesson for us to learn. Are you at odds with your brother, O listener to this podcast, O reader of my commentaries? Are you at odds with your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your aunt, your uncle, your family? Are you a believer? Should it be this way? Is the Spirit of God tugging at your heart, telling you to rectify things, to reconcile yourself to them? And yet you've said to yourself, I can't. I can't face them. They hate me. They're out to do me harm. They despise me. Be encouraged. Have hope. Yield yourself to the Spirit of God. Let Him soften your heart. And He can soften the heart of your loved ones. Just like He did with Asaph's heart. In fact, to be sure, as we keep reading the text, even though Yaakov offers flocks of livestock as gifts to his brother, amazingly, Asaph declines. He explains that he has more than enough to sustain him. If Esau was not a changed man, we should see him reacting like Lavon did earlier, in greed. Gimme, gimme, gimme. Yeah, I'll take that livestock and anything else I want to take. After all, you took my birthright. You took my blessing. Esau has every right to be upset, but it's the Spirit of God operating between these two men that allows or... Um, uh, orchestrates and leads Esau to make the decisions that he makes. Jacob's language in verses 5, 8, 10, 13, 14, and 15 
um, continues to display the servant heart. He is he's speaking to Esau. He's saying, "My ser- my lord, my lord, if your servant has found grace, my lord." And that's not just because Esau was older than Jacob, such as um, is uh, practiced in middle t- typical Eastern Middle Eastern fashion, where the younger would speak to the elder as "my lord," like uh, a, a title of respect. But I believe it's because. Um, Jacob's heart has been changed, and that he now had, as it began, uh, as it were, he now begins the valuable process of restitution. Jacob knows that that uh, things need to be made right. In the end, after we read the story, uh, Esau eventually accepts his gratuitous gesture, the uh, the sheep and things like that, the cattle. So, but first, Esau's like, no, 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 that's okay. I'm fine. I've got more than enough. What can we learn from this Torah portion? Such a valuable lesson in front of us. If we let the Spirit of God speak to us, I just want to point out this particular point of, of what I've noticed. Yago's life is a very, very valuable lesson for us today. And um, I'm going to skip past most of the details with Dina, with the daughter of chapter 34 in our Torah portion. And I want to jump straight to chapter 35 to apply some practical lessons for us today, okay? I don't mean in my skipping forward to minimize the atrocious um, events of chapter 34. Surely they were um, um, evil. The uh, the rape and such. Uh, I'm not trying to gloss over that. Rather, I want to encourage you to go back and examine it for your personal study and, and allow the Spirit of God to help you glean more information there than possibly I could give you. Even so, let's go back to Jacob. The change in Yago's life continued to supply him with the strength and the encouragement that he, like so many of us today, desperately need at times. Briefly, in chapter 35, Hashem again instructing him to return to Bedal. He tells him again to go back to Bethel to build another altar. Yaakov took the initiative and had his family put away all of the foreign gods that they possessed. Now that's a good thing too. When the Spirit of God touches you, Papa, it's time to clean house. So what they did is they purified themselves and even put on a fresh change of garments. Nothing like a fresh set of clothes. Then, as one unit, not separate this time, but as one family, they all made their way to Beit El to worship Hashem as a family. Papa, lead your family. Be the example. Lead your family to worship God. In fact, I should just pause right here because this speaks volumes about the situation facing many families today. What is that? If the leader of the house, which is usually the man, if the leader of the house would humble himself under the power of Almighty God, put away all the things that separate his family from the holiness of Hashem, and seek God's face and worship Him, then I believe firmly that God will answer his prayer and bring about a real change in his personal life and in the lives of his family as well. Okay, fathers, take up the challenge. Dvorah, uh, Rivka's handmaid, Deborah, Rebecca's handmaid, dies here, and she's buried at Beit El. After this, Hashem again restates the name change and the covenant promises to Yaakov, or Israel is what I really should call him. Rachel herself 
goes into labor for the second time. Remember, she first gave birth to Joseph. And in the second time, she gives birth to Israel's second son by her. Earlier on, Israel, if you remember, had foolishly pronounced a curse on the one in possession of his uncle Lavon's family idols. Reference chapter 31, verse 32. Rachel, if you recall, had stolen them and then lied to her father about it. She's sitting on them and explained um, rather deceptively that she was uh, after the manner of women, and so she couldn't stand and uh, uh, greet her father. And so I believe, just correlating the events of earlier with um, what's happening now, I believe at this time that Israel's vow, where he said, um, you know, whoever did this, may they be cursed, I believe that his vow took effect, and sadly... She died giving birth to a baby boy because the Torah teaches us that a curse um, does not take effect without a cause. And so Rachel deceived her father. She really was playing into the antics of her husband and and her uncle, Levon. And so um, she wasn't following the right example there or even leaving a good example for her children. Um, by being deceptive about what she did. So at any rate, and I can't be dogmatic about that. I'm, I'm, that's just my um, uh, small opinion on that. At any rate, she gives birth to a baby boy whom she named, and she named him Ben-Oni, which means son of my grief because of the uh, problems that she had. But Israel renamed him Binyamin, which means son of the right hand or son of the south. So... Sad, yet, I mean, it's bittersweet. Israel's got another son, and yet he loses his beloved Rachel. So, they they pause and they bury Rachel there on the way to Beit Lechem. They don't just keep going on to Bethel and Beit Lechem. They, um, uh, I'm sorry, they don't keep just traveling. They pause on the way to Bethlehem and uh, uh, bury Rachel. Sadly, we also read the death of Father Itzhak in this portion uh, this parasha. In chapter 35, verses 28 and 29, Esau uh, gives up the ghost and he is bear, uh, gathered to his fathers as well. So two deaths in this portion. The son of laughter, if you remember that was his name, son of laughter, Esau, his name means, he had lived to be 180 years old and then, the Torah informs us, that his two sons, Esau and Yaakov, buried him. There's a lesson there. I'll, I'll hit it in a moment. But his two sons buried him. The parasha concludes in chapter 36 with a genealogical listing of the offspring of Asaph and presumably his death. Um, it, it doesn't say that he died, but typically whenever we have a genealogical list there, um, that's what's happening. At least that's as, I, as I've as i read it. I, 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 I can't be dogmatic. I'm, it might list Esau's death later on. But at any rate, um, there's a genealogical list there. So... The lessons for us today are very, 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 very clear. <laughs> what do you think they are? Can you guess? Going back over Jacob's um, scenarios and seeing how he wrestled with God and how God touched him and changed him. What is the lesson? In case you haven't caught it by now, each of us must go through a spiritual surrender to the very Lord himself, to the Spirit of God. We must yield to God's Spirit if we are to walk in covenant faithfulness and into the blessings and the promises that are promised and given to us throughout the pages of God's Word. God just doesn't plop them into our lap 
if we are going to stubbornly refuse to yield to him and continue to do things our own way, operating under our own power. No, no, no. It doesn't work that way. But remember, Jacob gets his name changed to Israel. Who is Israel? Well, Israel becomes a people. Israel is a people, the people of God. The nation chosen by Hashem from all the other nations, from all the other peoples, singled out by Hashem to be the recipients of covenant blessings and ultimately to bless the entire world. So, in my Midrash, Israel must become the Israel of God in order to become the nation that she is, by covenant, ordained to be. You catch that? Jacob had to stop wrestling. Israel herself must stop wrestling with God. She must cease to be Yaakov. And she must become Israel. She must become a prince with God. She has, if you think about it, in the past. She's run from her oppressors. She's run from responsibility. And under the power of her own selfish intentions. All of these times. She's she's clever. She's been clever, and in many cases, she's outwitted her would-be greedy uncles, so to say, as she goes from uh, country to country. She's set up her tents in many a foreign country over the course of history. and She was used for the obvious blessing that supernaturally and graciously rested upon her until she, in the eyes of her uh, hosts, outlived her usefulness. At this time, presently, in the 21st century, well, I'm sorry, not just yet, um, when she was in, in, in previous countries, w- she would get to the point where she outlived her usefulness, where the countries would really just rape and pillage and loot the Jewish people, Israel, until she outlives her usefulness, and then she would take flight again, running into the arms of country after country, running from herself, really. She's not running to God. She's rejected the Holy One of Israel. In the first century, she decided that the Messiah was someone that she did not need. And so, she, Israel, of the 21st century today, she is wrestling, and she has wrestled with the angel of the Lord, and seemingly prevailed. Yet, she still struggles with her own emptiness and lack of genuine shalom. If you were to ask her if you could interview Israel, interview the nation she'll tell you she's she's hollow she has no wholeness she has no shalom there's no real peace in the middle east and you know what in my opinion she will continue to wrestle with the messenger of adonai until hashem decrees that she can no longer avoid him one day and may it come soon she will again face the messenger of Adonai and finally, finally surrender her fight. Just like her patriarchal counterpart, she will inquire about his name. Oh yes, don't make no mistake. Israel will ask when she wrestles with the angel of the Lord, What is your name? Only this time. His response will not be, like we read in the Torah portion, why are you asking about my name? But, rather, I believe that the angel will respond as he did to Rav Shaul in Acts chapter 9, verse 5 on the road to Damascus. What did the angel say there? What did the messenger say? He said, I 
am Yeshua. Ani Yeshua. Amen. The closing blessing is as follows. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melecha olam. Asher natan lanu Torah temet. Vechayi olam natabatochinu. Baruch atah Adonai notein haTorah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song, Shema, was written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A, number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>